This is Strange Assembly episode 249, Camarilla. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Craig Kellner. Hello! And you are listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. Before I do the little usual opening roll, let me note that we are, through the end of the month, doing a giveaway. And it is a giveaway for... This This episode is about Vampire the Masquerade. The giveaway is a Dungeons & Dragons giveaway, though, because everybody likes Dungeons & Dragons still, right? You should. And we have a copy of Dungeons & Dragons Art & Arcana, A Visual History, which is this 440-page tome just full of art from throughout the history of Dungeons & Dragons. It is fantastic. Uh, we wrote a review of it on the website, strangeassembly.com, that you can go to. But to be entered in this giveaway, you have to do one of two things. You go on iTunes and leave us a review. Leave the review by December 1st, 2018. And then email me, chris at strangeassembly.com, so that I know that you've left an iTunes review. Have you left an iTunes review for us in the past? All you have to do is email me and you can be entered as well. The other option is that if you are a Patreon backer of Strange Assembly, as of December 1st, 2018, you will automatically be entered in. That's patreon.com slash strangeassembly. If you happen to both be a patron and leave us an iTunes review, you get entered twice. And again, that is for a free copy of Dungeons & Dragons, Art & Arcana, A Visual History. It just came out. It's fantastic. But if you want to find out more about the show generally, you can go to strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there. You can also subscribe on iTunes, and you can find us on the usual social media. We're facebook.com slash strangeassembly and at strangeassembly on Twitter. If you go and find at strangeassembly on Instagram, you'll be able to see a bunch of PAX goodness in a couple of weeks. We are here today to talk about Camarilla, so let me preface it by saying I've been pronouncing it Camarilla for like 25 years now, so I know that there are people out there who firmly, firmly believe that it should be pronounced Camarilla, but I just can't do it, guys, so it's it's going to be Camarilla out of me. Craig will have the option to pronounce it however he wants, but I just can't, I just can't, can't do the, the Spanish L's. Yeah. So Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition released earlier this year in August, and we've now just had the, the PDF, not physical, but PDF releases of the first two supplements for that, which are Camarilla and Anarch. We are just going to be talking about Camarilla today, but if you've checked out your Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, you know that while there's always been a Camarilla in Vampire and there have always been Anarchs, the line between the two has hardened now, and there's no longer this everyone is a member of the Camarilla, and everyone has to follow the rules and has the rights and responsibilities and, and all that of being a Camarilla member as long as they behave themselves. It's now, right, we are the Camarilla, and it's the second embrace where you're inducted into the Camarilla, and if you're not in the Camarilla, you're just not in the Camarilla and you get nothing out of us. Although, probably you still have to follow the rules if you're in a Camarilla city, even if they don't let you in. 
Oh yeah, you definitely that like that's one thing that the book um, really uh, put forward is the whole. Yeah, that's the one tradition that we care about um, with the Anarchs. Um, we can now like blood hunt you to our heart's content, but we're probably not going to do that unless you stop following the masquerade. <laughs> yes, everyone is still on board with the masquerade, and so Camarilla is basically a sect source book. It goes through different topics like you know what the the courtly systems are in the Camarilla how coteries work and some of the other loyalty aspects of the Camarilla. There's some history of the Sequin Inquisition. There's some material on the Gehenna War, some stuff about religion in the Camarilla, and it, it does provide a little bit extra of each for each clan. There are no new mechanics for the existing clans. The Banu Hakim are added as a new clan, and they get a full-length write-up like what they would have gotten in the V5 core book and what the the V5 core book clans got here, all that squished together, along with a couple of new discipline powers, and then there's a little bit of you know view of the outsider of the pe of the clans that are not really in the Camarilla anymore, and then the main, the the biggest leg mechanical chunk after the Banu Hakim being added is that there's some more lore sheets. So that's that's kind of the table of contents summary of Camarilla. So what were your thoughts on the book, Craig? Well, initially, I think this is the sort of the, the book that the game needs right now. It's definitely setting over rule supplement, as you mentioned, um, really, besides the new, new, I say new, the new clan and the lore sheets. There really aren't many uh, new uh, mechanics in there at all, or mechanics at all. I think it's really trying to set it up as Camarilla has always been the default setting, as you said earlier, and I think it's really bringing the player base as they come into V5 to, this is where the camera is now. It's kind of overriding the old 2004-2005 Gehenna Final Nights timeline that they have established a little bit, but I think that was for the better. You know, kind of lets people take what they have in their own home games and kind of weave that canon into it rather than just hardline on it yeah well you know Ge Gehenna actually happening only worked when they were ending the game line and replacing it with right, Requiem yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've got this you know the pseudo Gehenna is still going on with the Gehenna war aka let's take all the Sabbat and put them in one place and I think another thing that did was that they called it the beckoning in the book, um, where basically the elders are called away to fight this great hand of war with, I guess it's the Sabbat here. Uh, I guess there's something um, dealing with Methuselahs that will probably get more information in further books. But one thing I thought it really did was kind of reset the power level for the game because players coming in, they're rolling in with brand new PCs. The edition just came out and Practically everyone I know who plays this game, everyone starts off as a neonate, and at some level they gain a little bit of power, but everyone is still leagues beyond them in the power curve. So by removing a lot of the um, old canon elders, it really allowed the game to kind of reset itself and slowly reintroduce those overwhelming forces again, and, you know, kind of give player coteries the fighting chance in the night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless it's Chicago by nine, aren't there still two Methuselahs hanging out there? Uh, Allegedly, yeah, I just listened to that interview. <laughs> yeah, but 
the, the interesting thing is I don't I don't know how much that actually matters for a nightly session of vampire in that it's really ultimately going to be the storyteller's call like in in the particular city that you are playing in did these big hotshot elders all go run off or are the big hotshot elders in your city still there right you're you're still going to have the option mm-hmm. as a storyteller of playing something that really gives the player characters a chance to social climb you know something crazy like oh well you know the primogen all just left to the beckoning and you're in charge now god help you i think i think that's actually one of the default coterie settings in the code book is you're basically the guardians for some elders that had gone off yes but yeah yes yeah or you know it can be the normal sort of thing and there is a point where this goes too far for example, if if you go back to first edition Chicago by Night, it's mm-hmm. really like no one has any free will whatsoever. Everybody's everything is just controlled by the two Methuselahs. That's a bit much. But yep. it's also kind of an to me, and I know that you know people have different people have different ways of playing, but to me it's it's kind of an integral aspect of Vampire that you're never the top dog. Mm-hmm. I know that there are people who play vampire games where like their objective is the coterie takes down the, the primogen and the prince and runs the city or something like that. Do you really want that though? As a player? No. <laughs> As a player, I, I don't think um, we really want that because you know we're in charge of things in our daily lives and we have our own responsibilities. Come to the gaming table... I think you want to just sit back, um, develop a story, and if your character then decides that this is in the character's best interest to do it, maybe they do want to gain some power, but uh, most most players that I know wouldn't know the first thing about running a city. Pre- present company excluded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I don't know about you. Actually, I do know. But in my daily life, I may be, quote-unquote, in charge of my daily life, but I'm not in charge of a city, but Vampire would not be the game that I would go to if my idea was I want to roleplay being in charge of a city or a small country or something like that. I guess I I know some people don't like it. I'm, I'm still a bit of a goober for like those long canon chronicles where you're, you know, hanging out with Tremere or, or whatever and uh, Transmogania Chronicles and all that. And so I guess those characters you are when you're playing centuries-long chronicles, those characters are going to accumulate a lot of power. But even then, you're not usually doing your whole, like, yes, let's run the city. I mean, I'm interested to see what they do with that in the Heritage Legacy game. But, right, it's a big difference what you're going to play up in a board game as compared to what you play up in a in, in a role-playing game. I That's just not a... <sighs> Man, if I was gonna, I, I guess if I was gonna play a White Wolf game where I was in charge of a city, I guess a World of Darkness game where, I, where the players were in charge of a city, I guess Mage. That's a game where oh, being super powerful is something that's more interesting. 
Yeah, and I think um, with the whole tone of E5, it's bringing it back into the, like the personal horror thing. And if you do have the unlimited power to just run a city, you kind of lose that personal horror. And I really do like the whole resetting the power level thing. So you do have the chance of social climb, but you're you're still the bottom feeders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it. And Scylla, that's, I, I feel like, is usually where this sort of thing should cap out. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at the point in time where your characters, where, where the, the characters would be, like, in the in the running, as it were, to be Primogen, like, you've probably gotten out of... Yeah. To me, you've kind of gotten out of hand. Again, I, I know other people want to do that, and certainly, back in the day, White Wolf wrote supplements that, you know, involved, like, hey, what would you do with a Coterie of Primogen? And especially if you're in, say, a long-running LARP or something where, you know, you have some character who's accumulated a thousand dots on their sheet. Yeah, which it's interesting that you bring it um, up as capping out as in Scylla. Like in the book, it talks about coteries. I think it's like page 88. It brings up like those those rules that all the new um, coteries need to follow. And one of the last ones is... In order to become Ancilla, they have to do seven labors. That kind of remind me like seven labors of Hercules, but yeah, there's <laughs> there are a few things, and that's one of them that are are sort of like, hey, oh, did you know there's actually been this rule on the book for centuries, but it just was never enforced until now. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Specific rules for exactly how coteries should be formed, how they should run, and where they sleep. I kind of really had a what we do in the shadows flatting situation vibe to it, I thought. Uh, yeah, so it's it's like what? the Technically, if you're going by the official rules in here now for the Camarilla, only the prince can form a coterie. Like, it's a very formalized coterie creation system. The prince creates the coterie. The prince appoints some other vampire... You may or may not want the job to, <laughs> you know, to be your mentor, basically. Not not necessarily your mala in a rules mechanical sense. They may hate you, but you know they they're, they're stuck with that job. <laughs> yeah, they're in some way responsible for you. Yeah, and then you're supposed to, you know, have jobs and maybe not not have jobs. I mean, that's the best way to put it. But you know, have some sort of objective you're supposed to accomplish. And like you said, it makes this reference to you know, accomplishing the seven labors and then you're Ancilla. It's... I think it's a little bit more complicated than that if you're... It's sort of like um, to join the Primogen Council, you got to have the power to, to step up and say, I'm on the Primogen Council. To be an Ancilla, you have to be able to step up, hold your own, uh, and say, I'm an Ancilla, and have people support you and basically not laugh at you when you make that statement. It's much more formalistic as presented there. Being a member of the Primogen or not has always been kind of a a formal thing, right? You are either on the Primogen Council or you aren't. And Ancilla, right, it's... it's, I I never pictured there being some ceremony where the prince recognizes you as an Ancilla. It's just, at some point, you've been around long enough that the other vampires in the city recognize that you aren't a noob anymore. And... So, you know, apparently you're an Ancilla now. You know, there, there was no formal title that, that goes with that. They do go over the titles. There's... Yeah. I'm a little up or down on the, the new things. The clan whip was kind of random, uh, especially... Actually, since the, that, that, I think it was from Second Revise where they came in, but... Um, 
Yeah, that was sort of like um, a, a deputy for the Primogen. <laughs> yeah, but then the example that they give is like a Camarilla ride person, which isn't even what the position was that they just described. Mm. I do like that they renamed the the sort of primary title of Harpies from Harpies to Herald and broadened their responsibilities a little bit, although the responsibility of announcing the prince's stuff is a bit uh i, I don't know that's it's kind of a yeah. shallow i mean Respons in in um some of the older editions herald was a specific title separate than harpy ever was i do however like i'm probably gonna butcher the name but arcady vogel was one of the heralds um that they give an example for and basically he goes on saying like i disdain the name harpy so don't even mess with that yeah, well, and that's actually why I, I like the switch over to the name Harold in that, you know, and this is the sort of thing that, I mean, maybe we should have been or should have been, we should have been, but really weren't thinking about 20 years ago, which is that Harpy is both a, is a gendered term and a derogatory term. And... Let's Fly, face it. Yeah. Flying it, monsters who are women that will pick you apart socially as well as physically. Yes. And it is, I, I want to say it's certainly the case. Maybe that's not, but it, 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 it really feels like over the years between published things and individual vampire games and all that, that man, for there to be like the male prince matching the gender of the title and the female harpies matching the gender of the title, then the other way around. And so we've still got the the masculine prince label but at least the you're the woman here have the feminine title of being social director i'm glad at least that that bit is gone how much will that change what gender people do or don't assign to harpies in games who knows but it, you're right it, it goes back to that example you know like this is some rough and tough gangrel guy he doesn't want to be called a harpy <laughs> I, I mean, part of me wants to say, like, whatever, get over yourself, but... Title's a title. <laughs> but but it's because it, it, right, it is a, again, it, it, is, it, it does have a negative connotation to it. It does have a gendered connotation to it. And so while I kind of roll my, I, I metaphorically roll my eyes at this character getting in a huff about it, it illustrates that there was a, I, I think, a gendered component to that title. It reminds me of... Of all things, there's probably a million examples, but this is the thing I always think of for this, is there's a, a Madonna song that's, I think, called like What It Feels Like for a Girl. And it starts the song off saying something like, it's okay for a girl to cut her hair short and like wear pants and whatnot, because that's like being a boy and you think that's good. But you think that a boy dressing like a girl is degrading because you think that being a girl is degrading. And, right, that's the sort of thing. There's no issue whatsoever with there being a female vampire who's a prince, because, oh, well, that's not a problem, right? Oh, you know, it's fine. Nobody's got a problem being the prince. But it's entirely believable to have a character who is all like, I don't want this harpy title. Like, <laughs> that's a thing that people do. That It's not a thing that people should do, but it's a thing that people do. But... So that's gone. I mean, you, we we already talked about the the shadow. That role seems a little formalistic, but the whole I mean, the whole coterie process is like on the the far edge of formalistic now. 
Yeah, no, no one's bothered to read those rules in 200 years, but they found the book now, so they're going to follow it. The other title is Principle of Faith. Yeah, that was an interesting one. There's like a whole subsection in this uh, Camarilla guy talking about how the, the Camarilla is going to take back the faith from basically the Sabbat who have in, basically perverted it throughout these centuries to their own likings. And there t there's a lot of talk about how that is belief in Cain versus belief in God is probably going to have some sort of a clash with their new Asherah brethren that are coming in for the alliance. Yeah, I have to say, so there's, we, we will necessarily have to talk about what was my least favorite part of this book at a moment. <laughs> I'd rather talk about some more positive things first. But honestly, the, the faith slash religion section of this was the other part that I, I didn't, was not really a, a fan of because honestly, it, I like left that chapter not really knowing what the heck was going on and there's just so many contradictory things that are said, right? Because the, the Camarilla has historically been a secular organization in that it denied the existence of antediluvians. It denied the existence of Cain. And whereas the Sabbat, you know, basically turned Cain into a religion. The Camarilla no longer denies the existence of antediluvians. And I think it's now agnostic on the notion of Cain, but it, it, it doesn't worship Cain because that was the thing the Sabbat did. And they don't worship their antediluvians, but now maybe the Camarilla worships Methuselahs? I don't, I don't know really how you get there. And, and there's also sort of the presentation in here where they talk about some of these cults of the Methuselahs as if they've been around for a while. And okay, that's true of Mithras, but it isn't really true of any of the other ones. And so it, the whole thing comes across as a little awkward. Is this just a thing that a few Camarilla people do? Is it supposed to be a thing that everybody does? It doesn't feel like... If it's something that they were thinking, oh, this is going to be a recurrent theme in, in people's Camarilla tabletop games, they didn't really present it in a way to make it useful to the players, yeah, I, I thought. I don't know. I sort of thought this whole section, while interesting and new, was probably better off um, being put into a later book, like some sort of like later elder book, because in my mind, the Gehenna cults and Methuselah cults were basically things that elders just did to stave off boredom and keep them going into torpor. So that's my other downer. So having said a downer, I'm going to say what, what maybe my favorite thing was about this, and I have to say it now before Craig scoops me on it. The entire book is kind of framed by these letters from Victoria Ash to some child of hers. And they are great. They maintain this funny and consistent tone throughout the whole thing. You, you really get a sense of what this character is like and what she thinks about and what she does. And I'm I would have sworn that she died in Atlanta back in the clan <laughs> novels, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, I never read the, the clan novels and I started reading like, Oh, who's this Victoria Ash person? I never been one to keep up with any of the main canon characters until I find a use for them. But then by the time I finished this book, I'm like, I knew who this person is. 
She is my sire. She is speaking to me through these letters. She is giving me my golden ticket for uh, success in the Camarilla. <laughs> she was the signature Toreador character in Revised Edition. So if you look at the Revised Clan Book Toreador, she's the vampire on the cover. Mm. Not that that tells you anything about her, but that's when she was around. There definitely are a number of right callbacks to that, right? They have not somehow just forgotten who the the canon characters were. So there are a discussion of that. And not just canon characters from Bloodlines either. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely yeah. a thing. So I, I thought that those letters were great. I liked the the section on the Second Inquisition that gave some useful summary detail of sort of how we got where we are with the Second Inquisition. I, I mean, if you've read the entirety of Beckett's Jihad Diary, you know, some of that is not going to be new, but V5 is not going to assume that you bought some expensive boutique product prior that, that was published prior to V5 and is not a V5 book. What did you think of the incorporation of the Banu Hakim slash the Ashira? Well, first off, um, there's this, I think, page 14 I have in my notes, uh, something about, uh, there's the Malkavian uh, saying, oh, there's only five um, pillars, numbers are important to us, we need seven pillars again, we're going we're gonna to get to the, that many Jessicars again. And with the Gangrel and Bruja leaving formally now, it makes sense that they're going to bring in the Banu Hakim, previously the Asamites, because they are actually reaching out... Um, they had the most to gain from an alliance with the Camarilla. They gave a bunch of reasons why they now saw this as a good time to do that. One being the Gehenna War in their backyard, the Middle East, as well as the Tremere taking that big blow. And they always had the big beef with them. So the fact that the Tremere had been knocked down a notch and no longer rivaling the Ventru for power, they could come in and actually be a pillar clan and actually make a contribution. Yeah, if you go through this, the plot of the Banu Hakim joining the Camarilla is a continuation, actually, of, of stuff that started in Revised. So It's been hinted at for a while. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where you, you started seeing, one, the, the fractures within the clan between the different castes, the warriors and the viziers, and the sorcerers, the latter of which does not exist anymore, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. And I think it's Urshulgi, Urshugli, something like that, right? The the Methuselah who woke up from 2,000 years ago and went, what is this Islam junk? I'm like three times as old as this religion. You shall all bow down before Hakim, and I will not hear any of this other god stuff, which caused an enormous fracture in the clan. So, right, the part of the Banu Hakim that is in the Camarilla has no access to Alamut. Like, that is entirely in the hands of the, the, the blood, of this blood cult. And so it, one of the sort of interesting things is that the, the archetypal Asamite is still, or Banu Hakim, it, right, is still like a warrior. Really? But when you get down to it, there are probably way more viziers who are hanging out with the Camarilla than there are warrior cast because they were the, the warrior cast were much more likely to to stay at, at Alamut and continue doing their things. 
I think that the sorcerers are gone because now all Banu Hakim have blood sorcery as a discipline. So yeah, that that kind of made it weird. It seems now like besides like the clan bane and compulsions, the only thing separating the Banu Hakim from the Tremere is what rituals do they have access to, mechanically at least. They don't have the same discipline set. They both have blood sorcery, but that's that is one of the things that has happened as the result of the condensation of blood sorcery is that it used to be that basically every single clan that did magic of some sort, and right, they kept adding more clans that did magic of some sort. It, it felt like... People like magic. The sort of feel that I always got for it was like, well, does it really make sense that these upstarts from a few centuries ago are super masters of magic, but these other vampires who've been around for thousands of years never figured anything out? But we knew really from the core book that Quietus was gone. Yeah. Because you, you saw Quietus go into Obfuscate, or part of it, from the way that blood sorcery was just defined, was just redefined as blood sorcery, and, the, and it was talked about, they even talked about the Banu Hakim in the core book using blood sorcery, so it's not even slightly surprising to see that the Banu Hakim here have blood sorcery and and the obfuscate, which wraps up part of Quietus into it. So I think, like, some of the, the lead things for Quietus are yeah, they're either an obfuscate or blood sorcery. And then you, you do that. And then I think celerity is their other one. Same kind of stuff it always was. But they're in, and there's, and there's this distinction, right? Note that, so the, the Banu Hakim really have joined the Camarilla. I think as a, I guess as a percentage of worldwide population, a lower portion of them are in than are not. The Ashira is not the same thing as the Banu Hakim, although there's a significant amount of overlap, whereas so the Ashira is basically a primarily North, Afri North African and Middle Eastern Muslim vampire. Basically. Yes. It's not just like all Muslim vampires are in the Ashira, as they, they point out, like, yeah, you, you can fly in from the States, that does not somehow make you a member. Uh, <laughs> that was a really interesting um, vignette that they had in with the um, Archon going in. And, like, you could see, even though ethnically he kind of was um, from the region, to all the um, Ashura in the area, he was Camarilla, even though they he looked really close to them. I think that character was somebody who his family had fled Iraq during... Yeah. I mean, I think it gives a particular time frame, but you know, during one of the conflicts in there, he was embraced while in Camarilla territory after having grown up and was being, you know, sent back in for this liaison mission. Yeah, and they're like, eh. it's not just this automatic thing. Yeah, you're embraced Camarilla. You're you're Camarilla, even though you have the heritage here. So there's an alliance that has been formed between the Camarilla and the Ashira, it may in no small part on being allies of convenience in the Gehenna War because the Ashira is primarily in the Middle East and surrounding areas and the Gehenna War is going on mostly in the Middle East. I, I think the story reason given is that, well, there's just tons and tons of Methuselahs and maybe some Antediluvians here. So, like, the, enti right, the entire Sabbat just went to <laughs> the Middle East. Let's go dig holes in sands and beat some stuff up. <laughs> yeah, so those are their causing problems for the Ashera, and then the Camarilla elders are getting beckoned over there. 
and all that. But I, I was actually curious, what do you think the, right, you, you mentioned that there's that bit about, oh, the Camarilla needs seven pillars again. And the Banu Hakim are clearly the sixth. So <laughs> what does the seventh become? Oh, gosh. Man, I've been thinking about this for a while, and if it's not the Bruja or Gangrel coming back, I'm sure it's going to be one of the as-yet-unnamed independent clans. They've been dropping hints about uh, what did the Giovanni turn into? It starts with an H. Hecata. I don't know if Hecata. that's actually... Well, there's a reference to the Giovanni as, like, Clan Hecata, because they're still running Venice. Yeah. But that's an in-character reference, so that could just be some person's way of referring to them rather than being an actual name change. Yeah. I think Hecata actually might be one of their bloodlines, maybe. But if it's not the Giovanni, I'm thinking it's going to be probably Gangrel coming back. They also did release an Anarch book where the Gangrel are there. Yeah. That's the thing. There are really relatively few options. As as is established in here, and it's confirmed in the in the Anarch book, right? Basically, the Camarilla was in talks with both the followers of Set, or the Ministry, as they're called now. The Ministry, yeah. And the Banu Hakim to join the Camarilla. And the short version is that the Banu Hakim blew up the meeting that the Camarilla was having with the followers of Set, basically to eliminate the competition because it was they were they perceived it as right only one of us is going to get in and we really want to be the ones who get in and it worked <laughs> there were only four independent clans anyway and that's two of them taken care of there's like you know 20 ravnos in the entire world give or take yeah i, th- I think this book even mentions like um well there's there's the ravnos all 12 of them <laughs> Yeah, but I again, I don't take that as being an accurate representation <laughs> by whatever in-character thing that is. But so that that leaves the Giovanni as the only other independent one. But this may be actually known as completely wrong. I guess you can tell me because I have not been following the details of the updates. But couldn't it be the Lasombra? Um, I mean, they are presented in Chicago by night, which is a Camarilla city. I just uh, listened to the interview between uh, 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade and Matthew Dawkins, where basically the the teaser was that Tally the Hound is going to be basically Lissambra Hitman for Hire. So that's the only thing that they confirmed in there, but the idea that they are making it a player-character clan does have a good indication of it. However... I can only speculate right now. <laughs> I did see that, and I did wonder about it, and they they even have hints, if you could call them that. They're the sort of things that they're either hints that are not designed to really be... They're not really designed to be hints, or if they were designed to be hints, someone is giving us way too much credit. Because they say Egypt, perhaps. Well, okay, we know it's not going to be the Sedites. I know of at least one strong pillar in the dark... That could be the Lasombra. I know of a pillar drenched in blood. That could really be anybody. I know of a pillar once drawn by the architect, but it snapped in two in the builder's ropes. Is that the Ravnos? I don't know. Who knows? It could be one of those ancient bloodlines that has been overwritten, or like maybe Cappadocius is coming back. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let's not do that. I don't feel like there's enough... Sp- 
base with the Cappadocians. Plus, the Harbingers of Skulls are already basically the Cappadocians came back. We've already got one clan and two established bloodlines where the clan weakness is basically you're so hideous that you can't actually exist in human society. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need another one. That reminds me, actually, I'm. I want to talk about the little mechanics right here. I think this is this is strange. I think this is the first time ever, maybe? I don't know. There must have been some other time when I read a vampire book and went, I wish there were more mechanics. This is sort of the book that, um, while I think was the right move for the game, I kind of wish that they would have gone either all the way or just went for a mix like they have in previous books, like, it would have been nice for the Ben Hakim to be in the V5 core book, I thought, but I understand why they want to put a clan in a setting supplement, get more people to buy it. But um, I, I can think of a couple, like, um, all Walls of Text books, some that are have been in past editions that were just really gems to mine, but they just didn't have rules at all besides the lore sheets. My favorite... <laughs> I have my right my my favorite vampire supplement is yeah the book of nod which does not have any mechanics. I also really like Revelations of the Dark Mother which is not a book with mechanics. And most of the books have relatively few and most of the mechanics that are in most of the supplements are not of use to me. I, mm-hmm. Again, I know this is a playstyle thing but Elder Discipline powers? Yeah, I mean, what you what you got your fourth dot in something where where do you go from there? I agree with you, but right, a lot of the books they have like right the level six, seven, eight, nine disciplines. Those are completely worthless to me. Really, I, I just kind of glaze over them. Or or things that are okay, combo powers. Maybe I can see those. They're usually not super interesting to me, but they at least could come up. But some of them are like yeah, combo powers. We have to be four and one and five and another. I'm like, uh, I. It's there, right? Not every mechanic has to be for me. I get that. But the biggest things that I'm often looking for when I'm looking at mechanics for those sorts of things is literally just what are the merits and flaws. I was actually just about to say that. Like, I was just looking at my old edition of the Guide to the Camarilla, and one of my favorite things in there was the sect-specific merits, flaws, backgrounds. I mean, they kind of cover the backgrounds of the lore sheets, but I want to know, like, what kind of social things being with the Camarilla um, can help or hurt me. Yeah, and that's the another thing that's different about the mechanics here is, right, if you were talking about Revised or, or especially V20, there were tons and tons of mechanics loaded into the core book, right? But when you just buy the V20 core book, you've got all the mechanics for all of the clans and basically all of the bloodlines and a giant selection or at least a big selection of merits and flaws and and all of these backgrounds and here you don't have that yet even two the lore sheets were recycled from the um, core book i noticed that at least one of them was but i'd like to see more merits and flaws and 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 here's the thing out of I, I, it feels weird because Vampire is not like a really mechanically focused game for me. And like I said, usually disciplines in a book historically, eh, what am I going to do with those? But the system that they have now, they can just be like, oh, hey, here's another random two-dot presence power. 
now it's available as an option for when somebody takes their second out of present, right? Because now there's there's some level where you have two options, and there's some levels yeah. where you only have one option, and or okay, there's a second option, but it's an amalgam power, and so I, it feels so out of place for me to leave a vampire book going, man, I wish I wish there were a few more mechanics in there, but. What did you think about the institutional conflict uh, rules at the end there? I don't know. Doesn't really come up. Yeah, I kind of have the same grown approach to that too. I thought um, for something that is probably better um, handled through like narrative or just role playing, it's trying to just basically assign like attribute dots to specific parts of an institution. And honestly, you projects as its baby brother and it'll probably work better for that so i don't really know why they felt the need to include it in defense of the the institutional stuff although it's something that i don't see coming up at a lot at the sort of power level of vampire game that i like to play it's like what two pages in the in the book so it's not like there's an issue with it eating up a bunch of space and I mean, if you are playing a game where you're doing, like, a long-running conflict, like, you know, oh, this this primogen controls the newspaper and is using the newspaper to essentially launch an attack on some business controlled by that primogen over there, what is there a, a convenient way of resolving it? I mean, right, there's not a way that you're going to fully role play that out. That's an extended thing that takes place over months and months that involves lots of little things. You can have the characters be involved in individual ways in particular actions, but you know, this provides a way that if you want to have that sort of, of conflict, and that's not really that high a scale, that's still within a city. I mean, this has rules for like having national level conflicts, you know, Greenpeace versus Al-Qaeda, go! <laughs> but it's one of those things where I don't feel it has a lot of use for my personal style, but I still think it's a, a useful thing that they have included here. So if that's the, the sort of scale of conflict that you're working on, which is not an unreasonably high power level of scale, especially because it could... I mean, th this could just be storyteller fiat either way, but I mean, even within the city, you could have an institutional conflict going on where the, the players aren't necessarily in charge of the institutions. They could be pawns in this institutional conflict between two members of the primogen or, you know, a mortal institution and someone else, or or it could even be the, the players. You don't have to get that high a power level super high to have something like oh well we've achieved control over this media thing right like take over a local tv station that's entirely possible for a group of neonates to do technically all you gotta do is like ghoul the guy in charge of it and there you go that's just what i'm saying is like i think the better way to come come forward with this sort of thing is rather than making it a mechanic it's just write some narrative or role play it out oh yeah but how how do you role play out if you say we control this tv station and that coterie over there that we are enemies with they they have like a controlling interest in a business that they're making a bunch of, a bunch of money off of and we want to use our resources in this media to try to drive them out of business what 
what is the mechanic that we use to represent that because that's not the sort of thing that you can I mean like there, there's just too many little things involved in that that would be super tedious to use and I I can hear you saying that like well can't you do that with the project rules and you can a little bit right it's even more abstracted there it's like my project is to stake my background that represents the media to do an attack on that other vampire's resources I guess but don't worry I'm not saying you have to implement it in our game I will say at least it's only two pages so there are lore sheets in here though Okay, so the lore sheets are very specific, right? And so this is something I said in the written review. It's They're very specific, and that's okay, because you can churn out a bunch of lore sheets, and if a bunch of them don't speak to you as a player or a character, who cares, right? That's fine. It's just like there can be a bunch of merits and a bunch of clans or, or whatever. But were there any lore sheets that you thought were particularly interesting, you know, outside the context of, oh, I have a character who would want to use that well two actually um first all hail all hail victoria ash <laughs> and secondly the idea of the uh, pure venture lineage i thought was something that they've really been hitting hard on in this book and i liked it like uh, for most uh, vampire clans they go in and say they don't care if you're a 13th generation um, as long as you can get this job done but the venture are sort of like the exception to the rule in this case, at least with this um, modern imper- interpretation of the setting. And I felt like that was like a big callback to what the clan was all about. I guess there, there are sort of two kinds of lore sheets, right? There are individual NPC lore sheets, and then there are sort of concept lore sheets. And I guess for the individual NPC lore sheets, there's, I mean, I guess it can be a, a combination of two things that, to, to make them interesting. The easiest one is, of course, oh, I like this NPC, and wouldn't it be cool to, you know, represent Quite that in some way game. with this character? Yeah. Like, let you know, basically be a fanboy. That's kind of what the Victoria Ash thing is, right? <laughs> the downside of those, and I and I concur with you on on that. You know, go Victoria Ash. The, the downside of those is that it, for many of them, it requires the character to in some way be present in the campaign that doesn't have to be present in a in a major way and you have a lot of flexibility with these because one thing that i which i think is confusing but is to remember that the lore sheets have dots from one through five but you don't buy them in order right you don't buy the first dot and then buy the second dot and then buy the third dot it's really five entirely separate merits merits yeah they're thematically related and it might work out for you to have more than one of them but you might not in fact you see with some of them in here like some of them are like you're friends with this person and then the next one is this person tried to kill you at some point in the past there's one where the level three one is you were friends with this character before they made it big like, like, that doesn't make any sense at all if you were, like, escalating from one to two to three. Mm-hmm. But with Victoria Ash, you see that a good number of the, like, I think three of the Victoria Ash ones require her to exist in your chronicle in some way. Either 
either actually be there or she's a character who's off doing things, but then her influence is felt. But the other ones don't. I like that. I, I admit that the pull for a lot of those is is purely goober fanboyish. Oh, I like this NPC. Wouldn't it be awesome? <laughs> I think I would like the pyramid one for the Tremere, except it seems really over the top. So the five dot version is I'm a member of the new Council of Seven. What? Yeah, what storyteller is going to let their new character take that, <laughs> or, or any character take that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's I, even just like the three dot one is like you're the regent. Regents. Of the chantry in your city, like that's not a three dot merit. <laughs> no, not that's that's not bad for uh, just the three dots that you get at character creation. <laughs> yeah, really. So, I mean, it should be like okay, so you can take that, but I was gonna say, but first you have to to well, this is this is even funnier. But it's I was gonna say it, it would give you that, but first you have to take like four dots in status. But it actually. When you buy it, it actually gives you a dot in status. And not only are you the regent, but now it, it counts as having three dots in Haven <laughs> because you get to live, you get to run the chantry. <laughs> if I was going to let someone take that, they would have to do a lot of uh, groundwork to get permissions and everything first. That's not something I let go from the very beginning. That's one of the odd things about these, about some of these being dots, is that there's a little bit different way of thinking about it in v5 than in in v20 because in v20 right after character creation you don't buy background they either happen or they don't based on what goes on in the game in v5 you have to buy background no matter how much role playing you do you don't get to keep the background unless you pay for it yeah you get the temporary dots you get the well the Tremere have chosen you to be regent of their chantry, but the story are like we're going to wrap up this part of the story next week, so you either have to cough up or you get nothing. I mean, and I think part of the idea with regent is that there's a a little bit of of, of downside on that. You have responsibilities to do, but that one was just a little weird mechanic, which is like just saying like, oh, I could see something with the new. The new so like I guess I guess of the new ones so of of the new ones because uh, Carmelita Nielsen was is a repeat from the core book but I guess yeah Victoria Ash is my favorite just because it's Victoria Ash because I look at this 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 book has like she clearly like enthrall enthrallment was baked into this book she crushed us on that die roll clearly yeah I mean even at the there's the introduction letter in the for the Banu Hakim chapter, it's basically talking about um, with the Vermilion wedding. She is basically taking a step up in kindred society from just mid-level to now. She's no longer middle management um, if since she's taken this position. The alliance between the Camarilla and the Ashira was sealed basically with the Vermilion wedding. So I guess I guess the concept of blood weddings is making a comeback in the Camarilla or, you know, blood marriage. And so this is sort of the biggest implementation of that yet was this wedding. The funny thing is I, I actually like that, but at the same time, it feels a little odd because in V5, they actually put that as a thing in the core book to mention that these are really terrible ideas 
because the two vampires just end up blood bonded to each other and in this horrible I guess I call me a romantic or 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 something I like the idea that that can be at least a semi-healthy facsimile of a <laughs> of what well, I mean right it's for still a time <laughs> Yeah, it's still mutually blood bonding each other. You have had representations in the books of characters who successfully do that. Usually, if the author is putting it in a positive light, it is typically presented as a, these vampires are in love and they have chosen to basically seal that relationship with, right, that's why they call it a blood wedding or, or sorry, a blood marriage. I think um, an earlier version of the book says these sort of romances only work if one lives on the East Coast, one lives on the West Coast. You spend all your time writing sappy letters to each other and only see each other once every decade or so. (laughs) That is possible. So I guess before we do the wrap-up, we are obligated to mention the Abrek Blight which is the section that takes the current pretty terrible situation in Chechnya and makes a vampire state out of it. So I don't know how much really needs to be said on this. There's been a lot of online discussion about whether or not it's appropriate to take an ongoing real-life situation and turn it into something that vampires caused, which has traditionally been something that White Wolf has avoided. Humans are evil enough on the, without having vampires influence them. Yes, and I mean, it, it just steer clear of it. I, I mean, if I recall correctly, the most prominent example of this, I think, is that I, I think that New York by Night came out shortly after 9-11. And they chose not to change it. <laughs> well, yeah, and they were just like, you know, I mean, that, well, that was beyond even like, were there vampires behind it? And officially, no, it had nothing to do with vampires. But yeah, I mean, they just went like, you know what? We're not even going to try, guys. There's just no way we could do it. So it's just not even addressed in here. I feel like that discussion is kind of closed in that White Wolf has now like apologized for it. So the company, I guess, has officially taken a position. But the, the, the more fundamental thing for me, or maybe it should be, maybe it should be less fundamental, but from the point of view of a the gamer rather than human point of view is why on earth... Was this ever in the book in the first place? It's an eight-page section, and as I as I, I recall correctly, so this this section about what's going on in Chechnya is as long as the section that describes every other physical place in the world. Yeah, that was exactly what I was just going to bring up. Um, I would have rather just had a one-page spread for each of the prominent cities. Yeah, let's hear more about Paris or yeah, sounds like. Like a lot has happened in, in Chicago, so they'll get their own book, but uh, London's a ghost town now. <laughs> Chechnya is not, it basically is not Camarilla territory. Nothing whatsoever in this set of eight pages is, like, has anything to do with the Camarilla. It's not like even a, oh, here's an antagonist of the Camarilla, right? Okay, yeah, you've got, there's a page on the Caitiff and a page on the Thin Blooded and a couple of pages on the Sabbat, that sort of thing. As a view from the outside, how does the Camarilla act? It's not even that. Agreed. So it it seems just like a complete misfire on multiple levels. But it's in there. So I guess we, we joined a 
large group of people in going, this should not have been in here. But I like the rest of the book. Like I said, the faith section was, was weak, but I liked the book overall. Oh, and I can't do anything really useful about it on a podcast because it's not a visual medium, but I love the cover for this book. I agree. One thing, one of my original thoughts was a lot of the art seems like repetitive from the core book, but it makes sense because it's a lot of it is the same photo shoot, but I've come around. The art is not repeats of what's in the core book, but yes, a lot of it is more shots from the same photo shoots that they used to do V5. There's a lot more of that here than there is in the Anarch book, it turns out. Although my least favorite photo shoot from the V5 core book was not a Camarilla clan, so it's not in here. (laughs) (laughs) But the cover is fantastic, and then there's like a variant of the cover a few pages in. The sort of not as uh, happy version of it, I guess you could say. Before and after photos. I don't know. But I like it overall. It provides some more information that we need or want. I guess we don't really need it on what is going on. Like what is day-to-day different now about how Unlife works in the Camarilla or in a Camarilla city with this whole hardening of the lines. And I think that can mostly be summed up as it sucks if you're not in the Camarilla, but you live in a Camarilla city. Agreed. Because that's not just Bruja and Gangrel, right? There are Bruja and Gangrel who are still in the Camarilla. And there are members of quote-unquote Camarilla clans who are not in the Camarilla. If you're some like low-level Toreador who like just barely made it into the Camarilla last week and you go embrace... That does not mean that your childer is going to be allowed into the Camarilla. I, you know, if you're a primogen and you embrace, okay, probably your kid's basically going to automatically get in, right? I am curious to see as time goes by how much we see that used or not used by players. If people play it as harsh a line as it comes across or... If they don't, I guess the, the main canon sort of, you know, official, the official online actual play is set in an Anarch city. So (laughs) we know. I think it's going to come down to the play group and the players and the ST and it's going to be, well, you're playing a Camarilla game. I guess you're all in the Camarilla. So make characters like that. Okay. (laughs) If everyone's in the Camarilla. Does it matter that the Camarilla has a harder line if everybody's just automatically in? I guess not. You should just be lucky that you're in. Yeah, make sure you take status one. <laughs> no, right? I mean, well, yeah, no, no, Camarilla yeah, status one, yeah. Or you could play something where the characters try to sort of earn their way in, right? Because let's, let's face it, right? If you're, you uh, could potentially play it as okay, there's a hard line and you're on the outside, but how much does that really matter from a neonate perspective? You had no access to the levels of power anyway. They're going to make you follow all the rules anyway. I guess the... Can't go to the parties. The parties, yes. That's actually the... That actually may be on a day-to-day basis for, you know, your run-of-the-mill scummy brand-new vampire types is that... 
you can't go to the parties. Miss out on those giant punch bowls filled with uh, a positive. One of the classic sorts of things historically about vampire is like neonates, especially the ones that have no social skills or, you know, actively disdain hierarchy, getting put into these situations like, no, no, you like, you have to go to Elysium or you want to go to Elysium. I mean, you don't really want to, but you want to because there are people that you need to access and that's where you can do it. Just don't botch your presentation. <laughs> How do you botch your presentation if you don't even... I mean, are you? I guess you still have to go and say, hey, Prince, I'm in your city now. I know I'm never allowed in here again because I'm not in your fancy club. Be gone. <laughs> yes, so, yes, thank you for presenting yourself. Now go live in the ghetto I have created for non-Camarilla vampires in my city. It's the worst hunting grounds, but let's face it, I would have assigned those to you anyway, even if you were in the Camarilla. You're lucky you have anywhere you can hunt at all. Have a nice day. Night, as it were. You're right. Obviously, at every individual table, it's going to be up to that storyteller and up to those players how they want to roll with that. But I'm just curious to see how that develops, right? Because it's, it's a change. There's always inertia amongst players and you know how much is it is it like there's a certain amount of time and then we all just kind of forget that it ever used to be a different way or are we sitting here like four years from now and everybody's still kind of smushing all the vampires in the city together regardless there's certainly a lot more options for playing non-camarilla cities now just because the anarch movement is like the the anarch controlled cities are not limited to like the west coast of the united states but we can save that for our discussion of the anarch book hey Hey. Any final thoughts on the Camarilla book? I liked it. <laughs> I think, again, I said it before, it's the book that the, the new version needed. Not necessarily the um, one that people might think that they wanted, but I think uh, getting everyone on the same default setting is a good thing. I kind of think this is what people wanted. I mean, I, I know there are people who want the, okay, I want the rules for all of the clans now, and I'm not disagreeing that you know, we want stuff, but a Camarilla book is really like number one on the list of things to <laughs> release with the new edition, right? If this was right with revised, right? You, you know, the guide to the Camarilla, the guide to the Sabbat, I guess at some point in the past, it may have been start releasing clan books, but people don't do that anymore from a business perspective. At some point, role-playing companies I guess realized, determined, whatever, that it doesn't make business sense to release books that are only useful to one segment of the player base. <laughs> you want to release books that everybody wants to buy? <laughs> this gave me what I expected. I knew that we were going to get the Banu Hakim here. I knew that we weren't going to get other major stuff. I would have guessed that we would have gotten a few more new discipline powers than we got, but other than that, this is what I expected, and like you said, it's what the game wants at this stage. We have been discussing Camarilla, the newly released supplement for Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. As we speak, it is only available as a PDF, so you would want to go visit Medifius, I believe, if you want to pick up a copy of that. We will be back in a few episodes from now, probably, to talk about Anarch, and then I guess, what, a year from now, we get to talk about Chicago by Night? <laughs> so long! 
no guarantees, but next episode will probably be a Dungeons and Dragons episode if you're into that sort of thing. But while you're waiting for that, don't forget that we are doing the giveaway. So iTunes review or Patreon by December 1st. You make sure to email me if you leave an iTunes review, chris at strangeassembly.com because that's how I know who it was who left it. If you actually support us on Patreon, I know exactly who you are and can personally message you and everything if I need to mail you a copy of Art and Arcana, A Visual History of Dungeons and Dragons. You have been listening to Strange Assembly. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there or iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app or the Google Play Music Store or Spotify. We are on the usual social media. So we are at Strange Assembly on Twitter, facebook.com slash Strange Assembly and Strange Assembly on Instagram. You can also contact me directly. I am chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear from you to get your comments, your criticism, your feedback, any sort of thing you want to say. I'd uh, love to take a listen. But until then, for Craig Kellner, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.